Our scripture passage this morning is Exodus chapter 15. And this morning we'll be reading verses 1 through 21, known as the Song of Moses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him, my Father's God, and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. Pharaoh's chariots and His host He cast into the sea, and His chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake. I will defy the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword and my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Uh, This week, we have a little bit of a pause in the midst of the wilderness. Uh, Last week, looking at uh, chapter 14, where the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, uh, they entered the wilderness, and we saw slight uh, issues with the faith of the Israelites as uh, the Egyptian army was pursuing them. They start to question God. They start to question Moses' leadership. And so we're going to see that um, in full bloom next week as they wander again through the wilderness and they have significant challenges. But here, in the first part of chapter 15, there's a pause for corporate singing and rejoicing for two reasons for us this morning. They and we are singing for what God has done for us, but then secondly, singing for what God will do for us. 
Firstly, looking in the first uh, 12 verses, singing for what God has done for us. There are three things. He saved us or redeemed us. Uh, redeemed us through His strength, by His power, and only as He could do. Firstly, we're singing for what God has done for us because He's redeemed us through His strength. Uh, explicitly, that's in verses 1 to 5, but verses 1 to 2 and verse 2 uh, in particular, the Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. I so appreciate my Old Testament professor, Jay Sklar, who translates verse 2 this way. The Lord has exercised His saving strength on my behalf. He has exercised His saving strength on my behalf. He has immeasurable strength. And He has put that on display for the Egyptians as well as the Israelites. How on earth has He shown to be this strong on behalf of the Israelites, that's where the song kind of surrounds those uh, concepts. He triumphed gloriously by throwing the horse and the rider into the sea. All of modern warfare at the time was trounced. All of Pharaoh's mighty men, all of his officers, all of the horses, all of the chariots, the greatest army that probably they had ever known, taken by the strength of God. And the singing and the joy and the praise are in response to God having done this on their behalf, which is echoed, these concepts in Psalm 59, verse 17. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. The idea that God is not only strong, but He's strong in and for His people because of what He is willing to do on their behalf. Psalm 21.13 Be exalted, O Lord, in Your strength. We will sing and praise Your might. Again, the Psalter is full of these concepts which ultimately are reflecting on this very event. The greatest event of salvation in the Old Testament from slavery, from the Egyptians. Lord, You are strong. But You've shown us that. Because You've used Your strength to redeem Your people. But secondly, verses 6-10 through reference His power, which is related to His strength. He's redeemed us by His power. There is a reference, uh, an anthropomorphism in verse 6. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Uh, God doesn't have a hand, doesn't have a right hand. But here, we can understand what's meant. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. That is how He has redeemed His people through this very power. There is this attempt there in verse 9. We will see a response possibly from God's enemy who say, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. We reflected last week, God's people have enemies. God's people won't always have enemies. 
But we will until we see Jesus face to face again. But even in the response of Pharaoh with this huge army, all of his power and might cannot match up to God's power. Because there's the response in verse 10, you blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. So much that the enemy tries to do in verse 9, which is so subtly and quickly answered in verse 10, it was meaningless. It was pointless. No one can withstand God's power. There's three offices in the Old Testament. Prophet, priest, and king. We see uh, Moses will be raised up in a sense like a king before the kings of, of Israel. He also plays the role of a prophet. But God himself is, in a sense, showing that he's the real king. That he's the real ruler. He's the one who reigns over all of his creation against all of the other armies. Westminster Shorter Catechism, though, will ask us this question. How does Christ executeth the office of a king? How does he fulfill this? Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies in a far greater way than even in the Exodus event that's recorded in this song. Because Westminster Divines will footnote Colossians 2.15, which I read, I believe, last week. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. He's basically saying, on the cross, Jesus shows that He's the true King. He rules and reigns over us because He takes away our own rebellious sin. Just far, far greater act of redemption. The greatest act of power in the Bible is not the Exodus. It is the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, which we have all the more reason to sing to God for than the Israelites. But finally, verses 11 and 12 say something very unique about the Lord in that He redeemed us as only He could. No one else is capable of doing any of this. Verse 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? That's a rhetorical question. No one, no human, no government, no one back then, no one now, no one will ever match the strength, the power, the glory of this God. No one ever. Many things are combined here. These were wonders, obviously, uh, because no one had seen things like this before. They were glorious because they were used to save uh, a people that he had claimed. Uh, Dr. Chris Wright points out, uh, like many civilizations, Babylonian and Canaanite writings uh, of their, how did we come about, their origin uh, accounts of the earth, They say their gods defeated the sea to create the land and and thus and such, which is uh, widely understood in the ancient Near East, in Egypt, in Cana, where the Israelites are going. They all had myths and tales of, of how they got there, how the world was created. But Dr. Wright continues, in any case, Israel's story is radically different from the myths. Exodus does not tell a story of Yahweh fighting against the sea 
but rather of the sea carrying out Yahweh's will as the agent of both salvation and judgment. The sea is not a rebellious enemy slain by Yahweh, not at all. The sea obeys Yahweh as a tool by which Yahweh slays his enemies, rebellious humans. This is unheard of until that moment. And God is loudly proclaiming, there is none like me. Because he created the sea and the dry land. And throughout this Exodus event in chapters 14 and 15, when there's talking of the separating of the waters and the Israelites are walking on the dry land, it's all Genesis 1 and 2 language. Pointing again to all of the original audience and to us, God is the creator of all things. He is the only one. He is to be worshipped and praised because of that. But it also mentions here that God is holy. That as we look back, as this song looks back on God's righteous judgment on His people's enemies and on His own enemies, He's right to punish sin. He was right to harden an already hardened heart in Pharaoh. He has the right to choose to save His own people whom He simply chose to be His own people who were also rebellious like you and me. We are not able to question Him. Of course, we have questions. But He is to be worshipped because there is none like Him We would want to worship Him. We would want to recognize that only He could save us like this. Because all of the water imagery also reminds us, again, of the Lord Jesus who calmed the storm, who walked on water, and who was able to make a one-time perfect sacrifice for rebellious enemies of God like you and I. And his father was able to raise him from the dead. This should cause the Israelites. It does in this moment. But it should also cause us immeasurable joy as we reflect on what God has done for us. If you've completely wrapped your mind around the gospel, it may not be the gospel. It is seemingly incomprehensible. That a a holy, just, and loving, and merciful, and faithful God would save sinners like us in a more miraculous way than the Israelites through the death and the resurrection of His own Son. Commentator Doug Stewart says of verse 2, it combines metaphors that convey the great truths that human strength is inadequate for the really important challenges of life and that the true thoughts of God should inspire in us true expressions of the happiest, most joyous praise we can produce, which for most people is that of exuberant singing. This is a right response, not simply in the ancient Near East, but today, that we would sing. That if our hearts are not captivated enough to stand and join our voices together and sing, then the Apostle Peter may be right when he says we've forgotten that we were cleansed from our former sins. 
We've forgotten what he's done for us. We've forgotten how sinful we really are and how holy and righteous and just he really is because that forces us into the joy of the gospel and exuberant singing, which is what the Israelites are going to need to remember when we dip into the end of chapter 15 and 16 and 17 when it seems like all they can do is grumble about their current circumstances. Amnesia. Forgetting what God had done for them. Can you imagine? Well, often we forget as well. And we have something even bigger to remember than Jesus. But secondly, there is a bit of a pivot that many would argue occurs in verse 13 through the rest of the song, which some have seemingly past tense verbs, but also look towards the future. So we will look at singing for what God will do for us. There has to be some type of confidence, not simply in what God has done, but what He is going to continue to do and ultimately do for us as people. There are several things. I will go through some of them fairly quickly, um, but this is verses 13 through, uh, well, the rest. Verse 13, what's He going to do for us? He's going to promise to lead us as we just sang hymn number 600. Verse 13, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Again, confusion, past tense, future tense, what's going on? Again, my professor recognizes with regard to the the verb lead in verse 13, it can indicate past action but also future action that is certain to come. What happened last week? Pillar of cloud. Pillar of fire leading them. But they go right into the wilderness, and there's an Egyptian army following them, and they panic and freak out and lose faith. This song is to be a reminder that He's already led you this far. He's going to continue to lead you. Therefore, have faith regardless of the size of the army or the enemy. This song is a reminder of these things that he's spiritually present with them even though they're going into a wilderness. Even though they're going to have difficult circumstances as quickly as the army chasing them, then the exodus event, then they're going to have no food and water. Has God left us? Has God forsaken us? By no means. God is promising in this song. Keep singing it. Keep reminding yourselves, as I have led you, so I will lead you. I will guide you. Brothers and sisters, He's he's given us His only Son who gave us His own Spirit to indwell us. The Apostle John says to guide us into all truth because His Word is truth. You're not left without a guide. You're not left without leadership. Regardless of unanswered questions, of difficult providences, He will lead us. Secondly, in verses 14 to 16, He will make us a witness to the nations. We have 
uh, verse 14, the peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. There's one nation. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. There's another nation. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab, another nation. All of the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Multitudes of nations are in Canaan. It continues, terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased or redeemed. What's going on? Everybody's watching throughout the world. Everybody's hearing that the great nation of Egypt has been destroyed. Their army is gone. And that the people that are making their way through the wilderness are the ones who serve this great and true and mighty God. Every tribe and tongue and nation within two to 400 miles of Egypt has heard of this mighty event that was like no other. One immediate example of that, that we saw this spring when we were looking at the book of Joshua, would be Rahab. In Joshua chapter 2, Rahab says she knows the land belongs to the Israelites when she meets the spies. And the land inhabitants melt away before them because they all heard how the Lord dried up the Red Sea before uh, you when you came out of Egypt. We, we, we read that earlier this year in Joshua chapter 2. Rahab is not an Israelite. She's living outside the city of Jericho and she's heard. So have the inhabitants with all their armies. You're the people. You're going to come and conquer all the people in this land. All, all the land inhabitants' hearts are going to melt before you. I already, know, I already know all of this. It causes Rahab to serve them, to help the spies, and to worship. Because of what God has done for his people. But what God is saying in the song here through Moses is that's part of the mission. Going back to Abraham, bless the nations. It's happening. It will happen as they move throughout the land. Now, this seems like a very bad way to do missions and evangelism as we lead with God's judgment. That that's what's leading in the mission strategy in the song is God has judged his enemies. Maybe that's not a bad mission strategy. Maybe it's actually a kindness to go to our, our friends, our neighbors, our relatives, and to actually talk about sin. How destructive and devastating it is on our individual lives, on the lives of our families, the lives of our country, the lives of our communities, that rebellion against God leads to destruction and nowhere. And to call people out on their sin and say, there's a way to get out of this. Through repentance and forgiveness, again, rooted back in the deliverance and the salvation of God, that the judgment ultimately did not fall on the Egyptian army. The judgment of all rebellion fell where? On the man hung on the cross. There you will find forgiveness. He's promised in this song to make us a witness to the nations 
And brothers and sisters, it's happened and it's happening through people like Rahab, through the entire city of Nineveh. It's happened to you and me. But verse 17, also another one. What is he going to do for us? He will keep us in his presence. What do I mean by that? Verse 17 says, You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Like a precious flower that needs to be replanted to grow, God is going to plant Israel in the land where he will be. He says it's for his abode. It will be in his presence. We are about to hear more about this as God will instruct the Israelites later in Exodus on the building of the tabernacle that will be replaced by the temple. You will actually see in Exodus chapter 40, the tabernacle is finished. And what happens at the very end of the book of Exodus, the glory of the Lord descends into the tabernacle. Basically, God saying, I'm your neighbor. I want to dwell with sinners. You're my people. You're in my presence. How can sinners be in the presence of a holy God? Well, that's why you go directly to Leviticus 1 and we start talking about sacrifices. How can a holy God be in the presence of sinners? Well, he can't unless there are sacrifices, unless there's blood spilt. So therefore you have the book of Leviticus, which again keeps pointing forward. How are we going to be in the presence of a holy God? The incarnation. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is what God's plan is. He wants to be in the presence of His people. That's what we enjoyed in the Garden of Eden. It was ripped apart by our rebellious sin, and we were kicked out of the Garden. And God says, I'm coming back after my people. I'm establishing you. I'm saving you from Egypt. I'm going to have you build me a home. I want to be with you. And Jesus brings that all forward, perfectly and eternally, in his death and resurrection. To say, I'm not only going to lead you, I'm not only going to have the nations blessed through you, I want you to be in my very presence. Which again, I've already mentioned, we have a taste of it now in the indwelling Spirit of Christ in the hearts of believers. That's a foretaste. The reunification of God and man is the purpose of all history. Why do I say that? Because Revelation 21 says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. God has overcome the sin of his people so that he can be with them forever. And that's what's actually going to happen. The new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth. We're not going to it. 
it's going to come down. And we're going to see God face to face. And that's, how, that's our reality forever. But also listen to this too. Continuing in Revelation 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. The Song of Moses is saying that he will plant us in his presence until that day, Revelation 21, comes to fruition. Regardless of the wilderness, regardless of the sin that we are dealing with now, there is the promise that because our sins have been dealt with and been paid for because Jesus rose on the third day, we will be planted in the eternal garden the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, with Jesus face to face. That's our hope. That's supposed to encourage our faith today to live for Him, regardless of our circumstances. He wants to be with us and He will be with us forever, even as He is with us now by His Spirit. Verse 18, He will allow us to eternally behold His kingship. That's that's what the song says He's going to do for us. With this simple ending, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Everything that we just said about Jesus fulfilling the office of king, about the, the reality of the redemption that we have coming to fruition. In Revelation 21, the perfect justice and righteousness of the punishment of evil. We are going to behold eternal righteousness from the true ruler and monarch of all of the earth forever, this song says. I can think of nothing better. We could go all the way to the end and see Revelation 21 and 22 confirms all of this, that the one who was mocked as the king of the Jews is actually the king of all creation, the king of all of the earth, but most importantly, the king of his own people who will subdue and defeat all of his and our enemies. There will be no enemies eternally. Evil will be defeated. But finally, verses 19 through 21, I think, is a promise that he will use all of us on his mission. The song has ended in verse 18. Why on earth do we have this wonderful summary verse in verse 19 and then discussion about Miriam, who's named for the first time in the book, leading women and singing? This seems t- quite strange. We have Miriam, who's uh, Moses' sister, uh, named here as a prophetess, grabs a tambourine and leads in a sense, in the refrain of the song that the song began with, why on earth is it here? There's argument and debate. Is she just involving the women? Were they not involved before? Uh, Is she actually the author of the song and now leading everyone in the song? Because a lot of the uh, second person plural pronouns are masculine here in these verses. What's going on? Female only singing here? Uh, Corporate singing for everyone? I I don't know that I have the answer. But when you look at Miriam's life, you will see a woman 
whom I pointed out at the beginning of the Exodus story, proved that this story is not ultimately about Moses. Because with no Miriam, you have no Moses. Because Moses would be dead. God used Miriam, his sister, to save his life. He also used Pharaoh's wife and family to take care of him as he was an infant. I've just mentioned that in the future in Joshua, he's going to use Rahab. And Hebrews chapter 12 lists a whole host of other people that God has used and will use on his mission. God used Moses' wife Zipporah in Exodus chapter 4 to save his life. God has used Aaron to be Moses' mouthpiece throughout this entire endeavor. God will use all of his people for his mission. That's why I'm here. Word, prayer, and sacrament to equip the saints for the work of ministry as a pastor-teacher. It brings great joy to see that there are a host of people that have stepped up to help our youth ministry without a staff person, including several teaching Sunday school. Our men's ministry, now the team is led by Bailey. Our women's ministry, now the team is led by Hillary. Both are growing. Both have executed or are planning retreats. A second men's Bible study shows that we're just that much closer to catching up with the women, which will probably never happen. The children's team, led by staff member Rebecca, more people are now teaching. We're doing officer training for more people to step up so that we could do more missions, so that we could do more church planting, so that as our church grows, we could do more shepherding. Why? Because Jim doesn't do it all. Like Moses didn't do it all. Yes, he was the leader. Yes, Aaron was the spokesperson and the first high priest. But the Lord is bringing more and more and more. With my wife and the church life team, there will be greeters soon. There will be church life and hospitality events continuing throughout the year, especially in Advent. There was a missions report that I sat in on where Katie, Michael, Rachel, multiple people have stepped up and reorganized our missions efforts hopefully for a trip next year, more missions giving, more sending, more partnering, because more people are captivated by the gospel of what he has done for us and what he will do for us, that we need to share that. As Doug Stewart says again, the result of Miriam's singing was that every Israelite, whether descended from Abraham or newly joined to the nation, would know by heart the story of the great divine deliverance of God's people at the sea. And again, a warning. They're going to hit a rock. Come next passage of difficulty, of struggle, that they have to remember what God had done for them what he has promised to do for them. They can do that through singing. I love a man from Chattanooga who has developed a ministry called the Pray For Me campaign. He usually speaks at General Assembly in a uh, seminar. He'll probably be here in Memphis next summer. I have several of his uh, books here, which are simply prayers. But he said... His discipleship process 
is to see, savor, and share. That this morning I would reorganize to sing, savor, and share. That his goal, Tony Souter, is that all children and all youth in the church would be partnered with two or three young adults and adults of their same gender who would pray for that individual for the school year. That they would see, savor, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. That they would be raised up in partnership with the parents. Covenantal union with their parents' faith in a covenant community. We should do that to sing the gospel together. Multi-generational, multi-class. To savor His Word and the means of grace for who He is, what He's done for us, what He will do for us, but then that we would share with a broken community that does not know how to be reconciled to their God. In rebellion, that we would go out, even with remarks of God's judgment, like the Exodus, say, but, but God sent His own Son to take your judgment. If you would put your faith and trust in Him, that they would be enveloped into our community like Rahab, to sing and savor and share the gospel with us. Let us pray together. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would enable us to continue in the midst of the wilderness wanderings until we see you again face to face, to sing praises to you, to savor what you've done for us, what you will do for us, that you would give us boldness to share, that you've even taken our own judgment far worse than what the Egyptians suffered. Eternal punishment without you. Jesus, you took that upon yourself on the cross that we would be set free, that we would serve you. May it be true of us. Christ, then we pray. Amen.